Well, good afternoon. Good to see you. Good to be here. Nice to have a beautiful Sabbath day. This being the third Sabbath in the Council of Pentecost. I like to keep track of that and follow it because it is a definite tie between those holy days. You don't have that same kind of tie uh, between Pentecost and the fall festivals. But the spring festivals are tied together by this count of 49 plus 1, 50 days. And we know that the Jubilee is a 50-year cycle, and there is a tie-in between the Jubilee and the Count of Pentecost. Uh, we recently, I think, began to understand the last day of unleavened bread as being a time of great deliverance, as being a time where God took charge and brought his people out, delivered them, and began to bless them in ways that they had not been blessed. Uh, of course, they rebelled immediately, and he had to take blessing away and give them 40 years of bitter wandering in the desert or the wilderness uh, in order to teach them a lesson and have their carcasses die there and their children go in then finally to the promised land 40 years later. But there is a definite tie-in, I think, between Last Day of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost in the same way that Joel 2 lays it out. He talks about the first month of the year and how he would give the former rains and the latter rains as well to some degree. <clears throat> and then a few verses later, he talks about pouring out his spirit and giving uh, dreams and visions and so on to young and old and so on. And Peter, of course, thought that that was all being fulfilled right there in Acts 2. And he was partially right. It was a fulfillment. And it did tie Christ's sacrifice and death and living and the unleavened bread with the count of 50 to Pentecost there in Acts 2 when that happened. And certainly they began to speak in tongues, whether it was dreams and visions, it doesn't specify, but certainly in tongues. And they began to have all kinds of miracles and healings. And the church grew very rapidly from that day. Some days 3,000, some days 5,000 people added because of the power that God showed. Uh, and it wasn't the apostles that did it. In fact, uh, when people were being healed just at the shadow passing, uh, they thought, Peter and John, James were like God, or godly, or God. And a lot of people who were uh, Gentiles or ungodly attributed that later on to Paul as well and said, well, you're, you're Mars, you're Venus. Uh, we can see by the things you're doing that you are these gods. And Peter just told them, you really think this is us? We were just fishermen. All we're doing here is the bidding of he who has this kind of power and who is doing it, and they preached Christ. They didn't preach Peter or John or James. Uh, they preached Christ. Uh, 
And that's a lesson that we all have to learn, is that the source of power is indeed God. And Israel had to start learning those things when they came out of Mitzrayim. Uh, they asked which God, and were told, oh, it's, it's this one, <laughs> the only real one. And they began to accept that, and they saw him do incredible things. And then the first time they had a want or a need, they cast him aside and complained to him, complained about him. Anyway, uh, this is all tied together with the count of fifty. And uh, you can't get away from that. Acts, I mean, uh, Joel 2 puts it that way, I believe. First month, and then later on, come the visions and dreams and so on that would occur. And, of course, there in that context, he talks about signs in the heavens and the day of the Lord and blackness. And Peter didn't preach that part of it. <laughs> he just left it out. Or it doesn't, doesn't say that he did that. But he was expecting those things to happen, I'm sure, as well. So maybe he did say it. But it didn't happen. <clears throat> because it wasn't the end time. It wasn't the final fulfillment. Which is going to be far more dramatic. Uh, pretty dramatic when three, five thousand people show up in one day saying, Hey, I want to be part of this. That's pretty dramatic. And people being healed left and right who had been lame from birth for just this purpose to be healed they were someone that everybody knew the man there at the well everybody knew him they went by him all the time so God had him there all those years so he could be an absolute witness of what went on now did the man suffer? Yeah, did he have a real good quality of life? Nope. He had a tough time. All through his life, and he had no clue why. He was just lame from birth, but there was a purpose in it. And God's purposes go far beyond our comforts, if you will. We have troubles and trials here in this life, and he says to count them all joy. Now, when I hurt, sometimes the way I hurt, I don't think about it as joy. <laughs> you know, your head hurts, your back hurts, your feet hurt, whatever it is hurts that hurts, and it's hard to count it joy because it hurts. But if you back off and think about it, it's part of what keeps us turning to God who is the answer for all the problems and holds the keys of eternal life. So a certain amount of pain, a certain amount of anguish, a certain amount of aging, all these things are part of his plan and his purpose to show us that we aren't much and that we need more than what we have. Now I'm going to go back a little bit into the end of Deuteronomy here because it sort of sums up what happened through those 40 years, and they were about to be blessed. God had been preparing them and getting them ready to be blessed. Now, isn't it an awful thing, really, that we are so stiff-necked, so stubborn, so prideful, so egocentric, 
so selfish in so many ways that God has to prepare us in order to bless us because he knows if he blesses us, we'll likely turn from him. And that has been the history. People get blessed, they get fat, and they turn from God. They go through a time of misery, and they start turning back to God. So right here at the end, he's put us through an awful lot of misery and confusion spiritually, emotionally. And he's also letting us go through a great deal of trial, trouble, and pain in our physical bodies as we are the degenerate product of 6,000 years of misuse and abuse since Adam and Eve on down. And you and I suffer as a result of those things. Now, here in Deuteronomy 31... Uh, verse 23, he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge, a responsibility, uh, an instruction, and said, Be strong and of a good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So he promises them, this is going to work, you're going to do it, and I am going to be with you. And it came to pass, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law, put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. There's the law. It's the witness. And against is used properly here, I think, in terms of God knowing knowing what they would be and what they would do. And here is the contrast. Here's what you were told, and here's what you did. So he had a legal standing there before them with that covenant being there. Then he says, For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. While I am yet alive with you this day, you have been a rebellious against the Eternal, and how much more after my death? This is Moses speaking here. Well, I've been here to guide you, to lead you, to try to help you, and you've been stiff-necked and rebellious even with me. What are you going to be like when I'm gone? Wow. Anyway, uh, he goes on and tells them a little more, and then down in verse... 29, uh, about the middle of the verse, he says, I have commanded you, and evil, or, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Eternal to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. And Moses spoke in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of the song until they were ended. So he says, I'm telling you, What's going to happen in the latter days? We're now there. It's been a while, but we're in the latter days now. Give ear, O you heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, 
as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the sh- showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Eternal, ascribe you the greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, without iniquity, just and righteous, is or right is he. And he is the rock. Now, Moses was called upon to speak to the rock and have water come out, living, fresh, actual, physical water. Now, why did God get upset when he not just spoke to it, but struck it? Well, that rock represented Christ, who is our rock. And it's okay to speak to Christ and ask him to do something, but you don't take a rod and strike him. They did that when they killed him. That isn't our job to strike the rock. And that was a big deal when you think about it that way. You might say, well, what's the big deal here? You speak to it, or you get a little upset because they're yowling at you, and you you smack it instead, and physical water comes out. Well and good, uh, in one respect. But when you understand the symbolism there, and how important this was, and that it's speaking of later times and spiritual fulfillments and how Christ would become the rock, you don't strike the rock. Uh, this was a huge thing in God's eyes, and it became a huge thing in the eyes of Israel. And when we get to the end of Moses' life, you're going to see he suffered a penalty for that very thing. Now, David suffered some penalties for some of the things he did. Now, in some respects, on a physical, human level, we might think the things that David did were worse than what Moses did, just, you know, smacking the rock with a stick. Now, as far as human consequences were concerned in David's day, some of the things he did were pretty consequential. But just smacking a rock, you wouldn't think, you know, why why heavy consequence? Well, because of the very spiritual meaning. That's what it's all about. So consider these things in the last days and how Christ is our rock. Uh, Then he chastises them for being the way they are. And then in verse 8 he says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So you had the races of the earth. He divided the people where he wanted them to go. And he set the bounds way ahead of time for where Israel would be. For a long time, they weren't a people, and other people lived in those areas where Israel was. And when Abraham was sent to find a city, there were already Canaanites living there. They'd already left the ark, crossed the countries, and were dwelling there where Jerusalem would be. 
And he had to dwell with the Canaanites for quite some time to deal with them. But God had set the bounds way ahead of time, and when the time came, he ran those peoples out, uh, sent them across the seas. Some of them came back with visits and so on, the Chinese and various ones. But God basically saved it for Israel. And though there were some scattered bands of mixed people living here, uh, it had been preserved for Israel when we got here. And the land had had her rest. It was in good shape. There was water. There was wild game. There was everything we could need. So God has always taken care of his people. Is not he, verse 6, your father that has bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Look how he's established us in this country. From it being almost empty to filled with Israelites. And how he's taken care of us all these 430 years plus now. And what have we done with it? It's sad. It's just truly sad. Israel seems never to learn. And even the end time church who was given all this information, essentially, they didn't understand it in some ways the way we do today because we have a bigger overview today than Herbert Armstrong had, for instance. But God had given us all of this just like he traditionally had. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Out of the peoples of the earth, his tent, his portion, is Israel. So even in the end time, he tells us the end time church is going to be scattered and exposed and confused and torn apart, and yet out of that he is going to have his part, 10% of it, as his spiritual Israel, and he calls it then, Zechariah 2, the apple of his eye. That's all that's left, is a few thousand. And they're the apple of his eye. He says that back here. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. And he led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. We can go clear back here and see end-time prophecy written. God says the same thing back here about what he's going to do with Israel that he tells that 10% remnant in the end time. You wonder how important tithing is? Maybe it doesn't seem that important to some people in some ways. And yet it represents those people who will be the apple of his eye. His portion. That's what he says back here. The people on the earth, Israel is my portion. And here at the end, out of all the church, those faithful ones who come as a remnant to build a temple is his portion, and it is his apple of his eye. Same things he said back here. <clears throat> we should take a great deal of courage and heart from the fact that God has bound himself 
in the end time prophecies to do what he said would be done back here that actually happened and then they fouled up. Now he began to give the church spiritual blessings under Herbert Armstrong. After a long period of no truth or very little truth in the land. How many Sabbath keepers were there? How many Ellen G. White and the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jews? That was it, pretty much. And Ellen G. had ties to true servants of God from Rhode Island and forward. And there was no split because Herbert Armstrong was never an SDA. But they were from the same tree, branches of the same tree. So, there weren't many Sabbath keepers around, and God raised him up and did a marvelous work, I think you'd have to say, in such a short time to come to have as many members from a new church that was contrary in almost every belief from all the churches around, from all the so-called Christians around. And out of that, he brought forth at least 150,000. More than that, really, if you consider the ones that were there at first and died and came and died and came and died and came and died. Uh, how many are there back there? I don't know. And I don't know how he counts the 10% that are coming from the whole bunch or from the 150 that were there and how many of them were converted and how many weren't. We don't know. So we have no idea. That's why I take the 8,000 or 7,000, I guess, uh, that had bent their knee to Baal that Elijah mentioned, uh, maybe there's that many. Or maybe it's a thousand for each tribe would be around 12,000. But I can't imagine it being much bigger than that. His tithe of the end time church. Uh, verse 11, As an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads abroad her wings, and takes them, bears them on her wings. So the Eternal alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He used Moses as a physical leader, but you don't do all the things that happened without the power of God there. A human being simply couldn't do it. No way. And he made him ride on the high places of the earth, that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck uh, honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock. There just wasn't out, much out there in the wilderness, and out of all that rock and desert and wilderness and scrub brush and scrub trees, here came water, here came oil, here came all the things that they could want. Butter of milk and milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of the Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat and you did drink the pure blood of the grape. Wine. But you waxed fat and kicked and became sinful and rejected the rock of salvation. Now here it ties Christ in with what was going with him. The rock of salvation, not just the rock of physical water. Christ is the rock of salvation. 
provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, and on and on it goes. They had no faith, verse 20. Uh, Moved me to jealousy with that which is not God, verse 21. And they provoked me to anger with their vanities. And then he punished. I don't want to get into this too much because I want to continue on uh, into something else, but uh, he goes to show that Verse 35, uh, to me, belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in that time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, that the things that shall come upon them make haste. So God will judge his people and relent himself uh, for his servants when he sees that their power is gone. What happened to the church became powerless. That is, sons, the sons of Herbert Armstrong, spiritual sons, would become eunuchs in Babylon. And that's what happened to us. And the ones that are out there still trying to be priests uh, are basically eunuchs. A eunuch can't engender children. And they are not having any success gendering new children. It's just not happening. They're spiritual eunuchs. He says in verse 39, I kill and I make alive. So he's reviewing here. Things can go well or things can go bad. It's up to you. You're going to have a new beginning here. And here's your history. So what's it going to be? Verse 47, For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing you shall prolong your days in the land where you go over Jordan to possess it. Here's your chance. You can have a good life and a good land when you go in. And the Eternal spoke to Moses that self-same day, saying, Get you up into this mountain, Abarim, unto Mount Nebo, Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, that is over against Jericho. So this is in the edge of the promised land. They were coming into Jericho, which was across the Jordan and in the promised land. And Moab and Ammon uh, and Canaan were there before them. Those were the people there that had to be run out. Which I give to the children of Israel for a possession. And die in the mount where you go up and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, climb the mountain, you'll look at the promised land from there, but you shall not go there into the land which I give the children of Israel. So, striking the rock was big to God. Now, let's take it one step further. Not only did he strike in symbolism Christ, but he did it in front of all Israel. And God is the God that was to be worshipped, and here was an infraction against God and Christ 
in anger and in impatience and attitude that he allowed himself to have. And it was a bad example for Israel. So, he had to die and not go into the promised land. Now, is that an eternal consequence? No. Moses is listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful who will be in the kingdom of God. David is going to be in the kingdom of God despite his sins. There are a lot of people who, on this earth who have sinned who are going to be in the kingdom of God. That gives us a chance. <laughs> you know, uh, some of those are big sins in front of a lot of people. And the fact that they were in front of the people makes it bigger. Because it's a bad example to the people when things like that occur. So he was punished. <clears throat> Verse chapter 33 then. This is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. Uh, and he said, The Lord came from uh, Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. Uh, he having trouble reading that. I have a lot of marks in my Bible. Sometimes the ink gets in the way. It's, not, it's my bad eye, but it's also the ink. Uh, he shined forth from Mount Haran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. Interesting he uses that terminology, because in the book of Revelation, it says he'll come with ten thousands of the saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yes, he loved the people. All his saints are in your hand, and they sat down at your feet. Everyone shall receive of your words. Moses commanded us the law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun, or Israel, when the heads of the people, the tribes of Israel, were gathered together. So he's saying, God is God, and he gave you everything uh, that you could possibly need, and he's going to give you the promised land. So then he goes through and talks about each of the tribes. I'm not going to go through that, uh, and how they will be blessed. So God is a God of love, and he wants to bless everybody, and he, he singled out different tribes. Let's do go down to verse 13 and look at what he said to Joseph. Blessed of the eternal be his land, for the precious things of heaven, for the dew, and for the deep uh, that couches beneath. The deep could be the oceans, it could be the deep waters under the land, which we have certainly benefited from. Uh, the Midwest, the West, have had water abundantly un underground that we've been able to pump out and feed millions and millions and millions of people. And for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and the precious things put forth by the moon, and for the chief things of the ancient mountains, and for the precious things of the lasting hills, iron, copper, gold, silver, on and on the list goes of things that are in those mountains isn't in the Middle East. They don't have any of that stuff, but it's here all over the place. And for the precious things of the earth and fullness thereof, and for the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush. Uh, God was in the fiery bush. 
who was on fire before Moses. And his good will is what brought forth all this. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. His glory is like the firstling of the bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together into the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Didn't, is, didn't uh, Manasseh, Britain, colonize around the earth? Has not the United States pushed in an often wrong manner? and had heavy influence over the whole earth, and become the, the superpower. That's changing very rapidly now, but that's where it was. God did all this. We need to sit here today and look at everything that has been, and marvel that it was set aside and basically empty when we got here. Uh, there were a few people here, and they were essentially run out or uh, compartmentalized on reservations or whatever, but they weren't too much of a problem as far as colonizing and taking over. Uh, so many people came that they were outnumbered terribly. And they were not all killed. Am I to suggest that we should have done that? There's biblical evidence that that is a possibility. When they were told here in uh, ancient Israel to go into the promised land, there were certain ones that they were to kill completely. Just man, woman, and child. Kill them all. Don't let them be alive or they will become thorns in your flesh. Now others, he was going to allow a certain amount of, perhaps. He wasn't going to kill every last person who was in the promised land. But he knew where the problems would come from. And when we came into this country, uh, we began to war with the Indians. The native, they, were, they weren't the Native Americans. Israel was, really. But they were what was left behind when Israel was taken captive by ship. And came back, killed a lot of them, put some on reservations, They've not fared too well under Israelite leadership and rule. Uh, we could have done a whole lot better than we have with the ones we allowed to survive, but we didn't. Anyway, that's another story. Verse 27, he says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before you, and shall destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall drop down dew. We've had safety and peace alone in this country. There have not been wars fought in this land. That's a promise that has been fulfilled here through the latter days. It's about to change, but that's the way it has been. There have been wars fought all over the world. We've gone and fought in a lot of world, uh, wars in other places in the world, but the war has never come here. God has seen to that. 
He promised it long ago, and He made it happen. Now that we've sinned terribly, and are about to be overrun pretty much like Sodom and Gomorrah, take heed, you transgenders, it's coming, and it's coming here. No more safety. You've been saved by the Lord. So Moses went up, chapter 34, from Moab to Nebo, and uh, there he died. Verse 5, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Eternal. And God buried him, and nobody knew where he was to be buried. Uh, We may know now. Now, verse 9, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Uh, For Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened to him, and did as the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua had followed Moses around. They knew each other very well. Moses had imparted to him an awful lot of wisdom and understanding and the law, and was putting him in charge. He was 120 years old when he died, and they wept and mourned for 30 days. Now, verse 9 Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Uh, well, I, I read that. And he laid his hands. So he actually anointed him to be the leader uh, with oil as setting apart someone is done in Scripture. And there arose not a prophet of sense in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And all the signs and the wonders which the Eternal sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants, and to all his land, and in all that mighty hand, and all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. So we're reminded here of the things, bring them out of captivity, the incredible deliverance, and then on the last day of unleavened bread, deliverance of the Red Sea. What a mighty show of power that was. Now we're about to see them go into the land, the promised land, and there's a mighty deliverance again. The Jordan River, however, is not quite as big as the Red Sea was. That was incredible. And the Jordan is a reminder of what he had done Forty years ago, as they go in, they were reminded, the waters can back up, the waters can part. What I'm doing for you is the thing that I did to your father forty years ago. This time, will you listen? Remember what happened? Some of them maybe were children at that time and saw it. And here they are, forty years later, going in and being reminded. Now we're getting where I was going to start today. Uh, After the death of Moses, uh, God spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, and he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise. Don't sit here. Arise. Get up. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, unto the land which I do give you to them, 
even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given to you, as I said to Moses. Now, he was describing at that time the original promised land, not the whole of, let's say, America and North America, but uh, that smaller area. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, which is probably the Colorado, uh, and all the land of the Hittites, unto the great sea toward going down of the sun, shall be your coast. The, whether that's speaking of the Pacific or whether that's speaking of uh, the sea that came up where the Great Basin is today, and I suspect that may be the case because it came to the edge of uh, Nevada on the west, and that's where that sea went through. So probably it's the Great Basin he's speaking of here, not the whole country yet. Now notice the promise here. There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shall you divide for an inheritance the land which I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be you strong, repeats it, and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. So the law was singled out here as the key to them prospering wherever they went. That's why it was put in the ark as a witness against them, as we read earlier. This book of the law shall not be part out of your mouth. You speak it. You talk about it. But you shall meditate therein day and night, that it may be that you may observe and do according to all that is written therein. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and you shall have good success. So he's giving them a key to success here, and that is reading the Word of God on a daily basis. You have to be reminded of it. How long does it take people to forget the law of God? doesn't take very long. It was being given. They decided to go have a, a big dance and orgy while Moses was gone. How long does it take you to forget the law? Not as long as it takes you to see something you want that's unlawful. And it's easy to just, oh, I want this, and your mind's on that instead of the law of God. So you have to keep that law in there all the time to help you withstand it when you see something that competes with it that you want. And that's not easy to do. That's very difficult to do. So we need reminders constantly. Have not I commanded you, be strong and of a good courage. That's the third time he says it. Be not afraid, neither be you dismayed. For the eternal your God is with you wherever you go. This is pretty nice words. This is strengthening. This is empowering to Joshua. 
Let's go back. Keep your finger there. We'll be back. Let's go to uh, Zephaniah right quick for just a little peek into the future. Zephaniah, remember, comes just before Haggai, which is the drawing out of the remnant to build a temple. And Zephaniah talks about the uh, destruction of our country in beginning in chapter 1. And before that chapter is over, he talks about the uh, financial crash as well, which is well underway, and we're not far from where that's headed. And says to his people, gather uh, yourselves in chapter 2, a nation not desirable, <laughs> and be humble and be meek, and maybe you'll be uh, protected. But I wanted to get down mainly to chapter 3, where he says he's going to begin to bless. And he says, verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Eternal has taken away your judgments, he has cast out your enemy. Same thing he says to us in Isaiah 44. He says, all your sins will be forgiven in one day. God will cast it away. He's going to quit cursing you for it. He's going to quit giving you confusion and frustration, which we're in today. He's going to smile on us and begin to bless us. And he says this here, as he does a lot of places in the Scripture. The King of Israel, even the Eternal, is in the midst of you. You shall not see any evil anymore. In that day it shall be said to you, Jerusalem, fear you not. Isn't that what he just said to Joshua? And to Zion, let not your hands be slack. He told Joshua, get off your rear end and get to work here and go on in. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. Like the apple of his eye, says that in Zechariah. Just as he did we just read back then. And he will joy over you with singing. Is God going to sing over us? Is it just the angels singing over us? Or sounds like God himself here, doesn't it? I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of you. Do we have a solemn people today? Confused, frustrated, maybe angry? solemn people, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict you, and I will save her that is lame, and gather her that was driven out, and I will give them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity before your eyes, says the Eternal. Sounds pretty good. I think I read over, or didn't, I mean, I just passed over. I was going to pick up that part where it says that they were to be of good courage and be strong and work. Uh, those, those phrases are used several times in the prophecies just as they were used to talk to Joshua just before they went in. So he's with us the same way as he starts this latter temple building as he was back then. And we need to be 
following the instruction he gave to Joshua, and that is to be reminded of his words and what he wants us to do, and to be of good courage and strong, and not fear. Now, uh, verse 10 of Joshua 1, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the host, and command the people, saying, Prepare food, for within three days you shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess it. Uh, And a little more instruction there. I want to go down to verse 18. Whosoever he be that does rebel against your commandment and will not hearken to the words and all that you command him, he shall be put to death, only be strong and of a good courage. Fourth time he says it. Be strong and of a good courage. You're going into a land where there are enemies. When God begins to pull his people together to Zion, will we be in a land of enemies? (laughs) Uh, Enemies of our own government. Enemies of other Christians. Enemies of non-Christians. Enemies of everyone with the uh, king of the north bearing down on us. There'll be enemies everywhere. And conditions that don't look too promising at the moment. Now, they were standing on one side of the Jordan, and here were all these people in all these cities. And remember, spies had been sent in, and they came back and said, these people are too big for us. We can't even carry their grapes. Uh, this, this is too big a deal. We can't do it. And only Joshua and Caleb said, go for it. Get it done. We can do it. With God on our side, who can be against us? So everybody else said, oh, no. But a few, two in this case, said, yep, this is doable. Let's get on it. That's what God wanted to hear. Because he knew it was doable because of him. But those other spies weren't looking at him. They were looking at themselves and Israel and saying, no can do. And on their own, they couldn't have done it. What did they have for weapons? They'd been wandering for 40 years. Their clothes were still good and their shoes were still good. They hadn't worn out. But they didn't have anything to fight with. But they didn't need anything. God was going to take care of them. And he tells the end time church, I'm going to take care of you. I'll be with you. I'll not leave you or forsake you. Christ said that specifically. And it said specifically to the latter temple, here at the end as well, many places in the prophecies. And so he sent out two men to spy secretly to go to Jericho, first, first place they'd reach. And they came into Jericho and went where about the only place they could go, actually. That was to Rahab's uh, service place. Where else are you going to go? Are you going to go to the market? <laughs> are you going to go to the mayor's house? Anybody who came into the city, wherever they were from, uh, the inhabitants of the city understood that men who had been out traveling would probably be looking for some harlots. That's just the way civilization operated. So, that's where they could go. 
On their way in, they looked and saw what was there. They got there and talked to Rahab, and she may have filled them in on some more information about the area. But then they'd been seen, and somebody questioned. They began to search. So she hid them and took care of them. Uh, here's a woman of the lowest repute in the city, and she takes care of the people of God and the needs of the people of God. Now, this woman is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful who will be in the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter who we are or what we've been. What matters is do we turn to God and serve God and fulfill His purposes. If we do that, Rahab is a really good example that it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been, you can be brought out of it and saved. What an incredible example. Anyway, she had them. <clears throat> she said in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us <coughs> and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Now, this was good words in their ears. They didn't know that they were feared. But she says, everybody over here is scared to death of you. That was something they wanted to take back to Joshua. Well, we have heard what? How the Eternal dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. So they knew... Forty years back, what had happened. They knew what had happened in the meantime and how God had brought them through and delivered them. That inspired fear in their hearts. And God is going to do some things here at the end that are commensurate to the Red Sea and the Jordan, and it's going to scare people. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man. God told Israel, be courageous, be strong, don't fear. And here they were coming into people who were already <coughs> fearful and scared. There's no courage in any man because of you. For the eternal, your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now that's going to be proven. When God delivers his people to Zion, and when he uh, shows the riches and the temple ornaments and the various things that he has hidden and buried in the area, when those things came out, or come out, Isaiah 45 says very clearly they will show all men from east to west that God is God. That these few people he's protecting He's the God of. Now, the world won't believe it, but they'll know it. I mean, they won't accept Him, let's put it that way. says they'll know it, but they won't believe and follow Him, is what it amounts to. And then the two witnesses are going to get turned loose on them, and there'll be plagues and all those things of Egypt to remind them who God is. They'll use the same plagues that were used in Exodus. He even mentions two or three of them there in Revelation 11. The same things. 
didn't detail them all, but enough so you see, this is what will be used on the whole world, not just on Mithraim. Well, God is going to do far greater things here in the future than He did in the past. So the whole world, and the whole world will hate the remnant, and they'll hate God. Verse 12, Now therefore I pray you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our souls from death. She didn't stand up against the people of God. She says, pray for me, promise me that I'll be taken care of, please. That's a good way to approach God. And the men answer her, Our life for yours. If you utter not this, our business. You keep this quiet. You get us out of here safely. Uh, we'll take care of you. Nice exchange. And it shall be when the eternal has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let them down by a cord through the window that <coughs> she lived on the town wall. And told them, they've gone after you to try to find you, but go to the mountain. And let the pursuer, uh, lest the pursuers meet you, hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned. They're only going to look for you for about three days. If you just go to the mountains nearby here, hide, wait three days, then it'll be safe to go on back. And they told her to hang a scarlet thread in the window to let everybody know where she was. And they marched around the city, you know, and they could see the scarlet thread hanging, I'm sure. She wouldn't have waited to put it out. When the Israel first gathered around and started marching around there, that scarlet thread was coming out. <laughs> well, everybody was locked in the city anyway, and they couldn't see on the back side of the wall where she put it. So that worked out. Uh, chapter 3, let's get on through this story. Joshua rose early in the morning, uh, and they removed. Uh, after three days, the officers went through the host and commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Follow it. <clears throat> Be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. Let's see, that would be, uh, oh, just roughly three-quarters of a mile. Uh, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. So hang behind the ark and let it lead you. And they were to sanctify themselves, and God will do wonders among you. So all they had to do was sanctify to purify to be sure they were the right attitudes, and then God would take care of them. Told the priest to take the ark and carry it before them. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 
They needed confidence in a new leader. It's like when you get a new president in this country, you you kind of hang back a little bit to see which way they're going to go and decide whether you can have confidence in the leadership that's coming or not. And generally you can't. <laughs> but here, God began to show uh, that he was going to be with Joshua. Uh, and you shall command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying... When you are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, you shall stand still in Jordan. And Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Eternal. And uh, he will drive out all the peoples that are in the land ahead of you. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passed over you before you into Jordan. So God, his law, precedes you. So take to you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, and when the soles of the feet of the people priests that bear the ark of the eternal, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand up on a heap, a heap of water. So the priests are to march up to the water and put their feet in it. And as it says here somewhere, it was springtime and flood time. And you don't cross a raging river at flood time with the spring runoff. A terrible time to try to cross the river. But what, would it, what did he tell them at the Red Sea? What are you standing here yammering about? Move forward. So it's the same thing. Move forward. Put your feet in the water and then it will stand back. Now, Raging River, I'm thinking this could be the, uh, uh, I can't even say it, the Virgin River may have been the one that he's talking about. The Euphrates probably is the Colorado, the big cold river, and the water of strife, uh, the rapids that are in the Colorado River. This is the southern border of the Promised Land. So, what other rivers are around? Well, this one comes right out of Zion. I, I think there's a good chance it was the Jordan. But in the springtime, if there's been a lot of snow and rain, that can be a pretty raging river. You couldn't walk across it by any means. And when it starts backing up, there's a lot of water coming down there. And it starts backing up, it gets higher and higher and higher and scary. But that's what happened. Well, heap up uh, very far from the city Adam that is beside uh, these other places, right against Jericho. So, I'm going to kind of hasten on here. We know the story. Uh, boy, I hate to pass up some of this, though, uh, to go through it. But... Maybe we'll maybe we won't try to just skip over it. Maybe we'll have some more here. Chapter three. Joshua rose early in the morning. Uh, is that where I was? I was going to get. I was going to get down here to the circumcision. Yeah, that's in five. Uh, four doesn't have a whole lot. 
that they were, they were to take twelve stones out of out of the uh, river that each man of of a tribe, twelve of them, pick it up and make a an altar that would be there for remembrance of what had happened. Verse 14, On that day the Eternal magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. Interestingly, with Moses, he was a greater prophet, and it was a greater miracle with the Red Sea. Joshua was also a prophet of God and a servant of God, but he wasn't on the same level that Moses was. So we had a tremendous miracle here backing up the river, but not quite as big as that which he did with Moses. They were to respect and follow Joshua, but in their remembrance was the greatness of the things God did with Moses. You'll know that in the end time, he uses types of Moses and Elijah uh, with the two witnesses. He didn't use uh, somebody else, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or whoever, but Moses, because the end time deliverance is going to be on the same level and power of Moses. So Zerubbabel and, Josh, Zerubbabel and uh, Moses are tied together there in Malachi 4, and then the Transfiguration as well. Uh, so they came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the month. And in chapter 5, it came to pass, the kings of the Amorites uh, saw this, heard that God had dried up the rivers of the Jordan. Now, that's not something they'd ever seen. Uh, springtime, flood going on, God backs up a river. Oh, my. They were already scared, remember, Rahab had said. And they're remembering the Red Sea, and now we look over there, and here goes the Jordan River backward. Uh, that had to impress even more fear upon them. There was no spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Eternal said to Joshua, Make sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. So, circumcision had kind of been set aside, forgotten. It's not something you necessarily want to remember to do. Uh, so, it had been kind of abandoned. But remember, he had said, sanctify yourselves ahead of time. And the circumcision is what set them aside from the Gentile nations and uh, showed that they were Israel. So, they did a circumcision right there. Now, it took them about three days to heal up enough that they were willing to get up and move around. And had the Gentile nations there understood that, it would have been a real good time to come in and attack. But God was sanctifying them, setting them aside apart as His people before He let them go into the Promised Land. Now, there's a great deal of spiritual meaning there for us. Paul made it very clear that circumcision is not important uh, of the flesh. Circumcision of the heart. We have to be cut to the heart of our vanity, our ego, our selfishness, our carnality. Our heart needs to be cut or circumcised. 
uh, the physical circumcision otherwise meant nothing or means nothing now. It was the physical way back then, but it's a spiritual way now. So some people have thought, well, if you're going to be part of the church, you need to be circumcised. Uh, it's the way it's been in this nation from most of the time is that most people are, uh, but not by any means everybody. And can you imagine if people started coming to the truth and they said, okay, uh, we're going to take you out back and circumcise you, uh, then we'll talk about baptism after you recover. Uh, it'd be a little bit different deal than what we've had. <laughs> uh, but we don't need to do that. Paul made it very clear. But some people said, well, the Jews do it, so we must have to do it. No. What did God say through Paul? But they got sanctified. Put it that way. And uh, verse 9, the end of 5, The Eternal said to Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, whereof the name of the place is called from Gilgal to this day. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover the fourteenth day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And ate of the old corn of the land. They weren't to eat the new until they had sanctified to God. But they did keep the Passover there. And the manna ceased. On the morning after they had eaten of the old corn of the land, neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. It's been said that uh, they weren't allowed... Well, I don't guess I need to really get into it today, of how you count the Pentecost... Uh, whether when it when the Sabbath falls on the last day of unleavened bread, and they use Joshua to prove that he should count them that day or not, the details I'm forgetting at the moment. Uh, but Joshua actually proves that they did eat, they did keep the Passover, and that they were qualified uh, to eat from that land, the crop that was there before them, because it had become theirs. Some have said, well, that wasn't their crop. The people that were there planted it. Well, as soon as they walked in and started taking over, it was theirs. No matter who planted it. They did eat of it that year, is the point here. Now, let's just stop there and maybe get into chapter 6 uh, next week. I, uh, I was going to quickly summarize this, but I, my object in these sermons here is to tie together what was said on the last days of day of Unleavened Bread about the miraculous discovery and the restitution and recovering and renewal of Israel. And all that has gone on on Passover and unleavened, and here we have it also in Joshua, same period of time when they're coming in, they're being delivered uh, into the land, and they're also being restored.
So, when did Jericho fall? <laughs> Passover time. Uh, I think there are many things that can tie together the last day of unleavened bread with those two ideas. Deliverance and restitution. And they're tied together with Pentecost by the very count itself. And after 50 days came the Holy Spirit uh, to give us freedom and a jubilee that was different than having your physical land returned. The jubilee, the, return, the giving of God's Spirit, was a comforter, a help, a guide, a lead uh, to help us go into the kingdom of God. So it's a time of deliverance from this world via the power of the Spirit. And people were being healed left and right. And all those things began to happen. And it's tied together with Passover and Pentecost. And it's tied by the 50 count of Jubilee. So we have to look for something in that 50 from the last day of unleavened, or when you start counting the Sabbath during unleavened, in the last day especially, to have something important occur at Pentecost. And I think, as I said earlier, uh, Acts 2, uh, not Acts 2, Joel 2 shows that. The first month comes uh, the former and latter rain, represented in great part by Christ dying and living during that time because he's our Savior. And it's he, only he who can restore. Only he who can deliver. And then we do our part for those rest of those days of unleavened bread and he has another great deliverance for her, for us or for Israel on that last day. So the meaning is there and it's tied to Pentecost when the Comforter would come and the Holy Spirit would show great things in great ways and it would allow us to overcome and grow in life in ways that we couldn't do without God's Spirit with us and in us. So this is all tied together. And so I'm still talking about the same stuff I was talking about on the last day of Unleavened Bread. I guess you're making that connection, but I want to make it clear that there's a great deal of meaning for that day. And it's all tied together by these events. So, that's what we've been doing and maybe even continue to do for a little bit here. So, enough for today.